Welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian, student, and freelance book indexer, querying my first novel, drafting a second, and researching a third. Today's episode is a very exciting crossover episode with the podcast WMFA, which is run by Courtney Ballastier. Courtney is a writer whose work focuses on the intersection of place and identity, particularly in her native Appalachia. Her writings on these and other subjects, including things like Detroit's post-bankruptcy art scene and also David Lynch's quinoa recipe, have appeared in a number of publications, including The New Yorker Online, New York Times, Oxford American, and many others. Her writing has been anthologized, and she has been nominated for a James Beard Foundation Journalism Award, and a Pushcart Prize. She's also a board member of the Appalachian Food Summit and a writing editorial board member of Looking at Appalachia, Call and Response, which is a textual visual project that examines the region 50 plus years after the war on on poverty. Courtney is one of our sort of podcasting and writing heroes. So we were very excited to talk to her and we of course, heartily recommend her podcast, WMFA, uh, where she has, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what we love about each other's podcasts um, on, on this conversation, but we just felt so privileged to have the opportunity to spend time with her, and we hope that you will enjoy the conversation. Uh, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it gets deep, but we really enjoyed it. So should we maybe start like introducing ourselves for like each other's audiences who maybe aren't familiar? Okay, I'm Olivia Allison, and I work in my day job as a consultant, but more importantly, as a writer, I've done a lot of different things. So I've done journalism initially and academic writing, and more recently, I've been wanting to use all the crazy experiences that I have uh, in a novel. So I wrote one novel, and then I decided I was finished with it, and I don't want it to be read by anyone else. And uh, now I'm writing a second novel, and I do lots of other weird writing projects on the side. And I, with my best friend, Megan, am a co-host of Marginally Podcast. Yes, and that is me. Um, I am Megan Brawley, and I work as a freelance book indexer and um, sometimes eventually, again, librarian, and I'm in school for that. And in between all of that, um, besides the writing that I do professionally, as far as like that kind of stuff goes, I have written one novel, uh, it's a contemporary young adult, um, and it is sort of half-heartedly making some query, agent query rounds. Um, I did a big round and I have stopped um, sending it out for a bit, uh, but I may pick it back up again. I know I change my mind all the time on that. Um, but I am also about most of the way through a first draft of another novel, also young adult, although I do have a historical fiction about Victorian novelists in mind that I want to start working on. So that is me. So that's us. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's us. Yeah, I am Courtney Ballastier. I have done a lot of nonfiction writing, um, started out in journalism, did that for about a decade, um, and then decided I didn't really want to do it anymore. Um, and I am writing my first novel. Um 
And I started WMFA basically because I started writing a novel and was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. How do people <laughs> do this? Um, and so I just started asking them themselves and, and found that I really, I think on reflection, I couldn't have seen this at the time, but you know, I was, I was living in a city that I, I didn't really feel at home in and I didn't really have a big community there yet. Um, I would come to meet very wonderful people there. So I don't want any of them to feel slighted about that. But um, I think really it was like that sense of community and that idea that like we do do this work all by ourselves but have a lot of the same experiences and like the more that we can talk about them maybe the better we'll feel about coming back to it I don't know but which I think is is very similar to to your guys's approach you there's there's a lot of camaraderie on your show yeah I think the community is definitely um one of the things I love the most about this whole process I mean meeting all of the different writers from the professional, super, you know, what I think of as sort of celebrity writers to, um, you know, people who are just in the same boat that we're in and all of the great podcasts and everything. So this is really exciting to get to do this collaboration. Yeah, I, I was very excited to you too. And I was, um, I was just listening to your latest episode and we're just thinking about the same things. I think so, so much of the time of just like, am I doing this right? Like I'm really, when I stop and, and really boil down how I my neuroses, I get really self-conscious that it just kind of all comes down to like, am I, is, is somebody going to yell at me or am I doing this okay? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And today, uh, in, this is in my day job, but it, of course these things are parts of our personalities, so they flow through everything. And that sort of, I am I doing this right? Like today I realized that I basically sit in meetings thinking of myself as a person sitting in a meeting, right? Like rather than being like myself, like at any point, right? And it's very hard when you're writing. You can't be a person who's writing. You have to be like the writer. I can't explain it very well. But you can't think of yourself as a person who's doing a thing, right? You have to just somehow tap into that deeper part of yourself that's like way beyond that. And it's really hard because basically my entire life has been focused on like, am I doing something wrong? Yeah, well, like like Austin Kleon says in um, his new book, Keep Keep Going, which is excellent. Which I just finished yesterday. It's so good. Um, it's I good. grabbed it at the airport and was like, oh, this is amazing. It's exactly what I need. Um, but he says, do, do the job, don't be the job. Like, don't mm. call yourself a creative. That's not a noun. That's a, mm-hmm. a verb. And, you know, because I think if you sit and think of yourself as a writer writing books, that's where we get all the books about writers writing novels. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's so, I don't know, I, I would be curious to hear your takes on this. And I mean, I, of course, do, like, I don't have, like, a, a day job that I go to, but it, it sounds like similarly to Megan, I have a lot of kind of freelance hustle stuff that I'm doing on the side with all of my other writing skills that people actually want to pay for. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it's not like there's a complete, like, it's not like there's no separation for me, but um I, I wonder if, if having um, a, a day job that you kind of identify with more makes you makes that separation easier. Because I feel like sometimes I, I can have a really big problem. I don't know if you guys have read um, The Fear of Art, but that's another big message that he, uh, Stephen Pressfield, writes in there as well as this idea of like, you can't let this consume your entire sense of yourself because it puts too much pressure on it. And you'll be so terrified of the implications of any error or any shitty draft or whatever that you'll just kind of freeze, which is, of course, exactly what happens to me sometimes. And But it, it's really hard for me to kind of make that um, distinction because I, I do identify so strongly with it. And I think uh, most people who do creative work, you know, 
also identify with it so strongly. I've like thought about the hustle and so on. And I think if you're a really obsessive person, it's really hard to put in boundaries. Not that I'm like a super psycho person, but uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't say I'm like nowhere on the psycho obsessive <laughs> scale. So I think for me, I think it's so hard to put in boundaries that as I like this season in marginally, we've been sort of talking through like, when should you quit your day job? And how do you put together kind of a plan for if you're going to do that and some of that and just like thinking about that. And I've personally gone through that and kind of landed at a point where I actually really want to have a day job because um, I can't tell you how freeing it was like actually writing the second draft, having totally abandoned my first, not draft, but my second novel, having totally quit, like wrote a okay draft of a novel twice and then said this is not what I want to kind of put out into the world I actually feel great writing a second novel because I don't feel like I have any pressure to publish it whereas I think I put so much pressure on myself in the first draft because it's like this is the thing I'm supposed to do or whatever but now it's like one of various things that I do which weirdly makes me do it more because I really enjoy it for me having a day job is really helpful just so I can be totally separate because I could imagine myself like writing so many things for other people and never writing anything for myself and uh and like feeling like a failure at the end of the day yeah I think that I I think all of that is really on point and I think um you and I were maybe Instagram messaging about this the other day um that like that idea of realizing that there are books beyond the book you're working on I think is really freeing um and like even though this first novel of mine is still very much in process. The idea that I've at least like started handwriting a like very rough draft of a second thing does like give me a little bit more breathing room. Um, but yeah, I think about too the episode that I released with uh, David Randall, he talks about becoming a parent and that really putting into perspective, like, I don't need to put so much pressure on the work. It's just part of me. Um, it's just like a single part of me. Um, so similar to your point, yeah, I can see where keeping a sort of safer space, I don't know if safer is the right word, but you know, a space that, that isn't really directly related, how that lets you kind of like keep perspective a little bit better. I did go through a phase where I thought I was supposed to quit my job. I mean, this is going to go on my podcast and I think maybe some people I work with <laughs> listen to this, so whatever. But I, you know, thought I needed to quit my job. I needed to like get out of everything I was doing because I was doing everything wrong, that sort of narrative. And I kind of crafted an online presence that was very heavy on like, I'm a writer, like declaring myself as a writer. And now I've gotten a lot more comfortable with the fact that like, I'm good at my job and I really like it. And it's really fun. And also, I have great stories that I can fictionalize um, <laughs> and tell in a different way. And and I really, but I genuinely enjoy it. And I love the people I'm around at the moment and all of that. Like the thing that you're most afraid of or the thing that you apologize for most, if you let that thing be, then you can probably even be better as like this ideal version of yourself. Like I can be a better writer if I own all the other things about myself. So that's I think important, but it was like very recent realization. Like exactly what you were saying about having a day job to set kind of a separation between your life and your writing is one of the reasons that even though my day, my freelancing stuff indexing is not, there's a lot of writing involved, but it's not a writing job. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of like reading and analysis. Um, but just not having any sort of external structure and, working two doing two separate things one for pay and one for eventual I hope as a career but not yet um, but both of them being completely all on me 
was way too hard. Um, and I found, I found like everything was bleeding into the rest of my life and I had no other life. And I was constantly thinking about like, am I going to be, and when am I working? When am I writing and being able to leave the house, go to a job, do, which is something that I'm working towards going back to libraries. So right now, like I go to school and I do my homework. Um, but eventually like going out, going to school, working in the library, coming home at the end of the day. And like, that's that. And having that container to put that effort into makes it easier to focus on my writing. Cause it's like, I don't feel like I should be doing something else at the time because, or at least nothing work-wise. Um, but it was, what was interesting is what you said about your guest, David, saying that when he became a parent, it put his writing in perspective because I did not decide consciously to write. I mean, I thought I was going to go into journalism and did that in high school and college and um, then changed my mind. And then kind of, that's when I drifted into the library world. But so I did a lot of writing. And when I was younger, I thought about being a writer. But as an adult, being a writer was not something I considered until I was nearly 30 and had a child already and another one on the way. And so being a writer was an identity that came to me after having children. And so it actually, I almost feel like there's more pressure on that identity for me than there would have been if I'd established it first, because it was a way to reestablish myself as an individual. Um, so I wonder how much like gender roles plays into that and how much just, you know, career first, children second, or, you know, writing career first, children second, that order plays into it, you know, in contrast between his experience and mine. But um, I'm pretty sure neither one of us is alone in the way we have experienced the confluence of parenthood and writing and those those two identities. You know, listening to your latest episode, the the thing that you guys were talking about, about being a people pleaser and kind of immediately, like, you know, even though no one in your life is necessarily asking you for this sort of always mentally kind of keeping tabs on like, well, does anybody need anything? What, what, what do I need to be doing to take care of someone else? Um, I feel that a lot it, as, as a freelancer. And, and this actually came up for me just yesterday where I was like, you know, I prefer to do my writing first thing in the morning. Um, and then, but, but yesterday I had a lot of kind of external deadlines and I didn't get up early enough to really leave myself a ton of time. Um, so I, but I knew that if I sat down to write, like all of these things would just be like weighing on me, you know, like the anxiety of having to do that stuff, knowing that somebody was waiting for it and that I had to do it as soon as I could. I think I can, I think I can somehow separate the writing from the rest of my day in a way that actually minimizes the writing. I don't know. I think in some ways, to Megan's point, I have no boundaries and it's problematic. <laughs> and then in some, and then in a different way, it's like too rigid of a boundary and I don't let it fully into my life or don't let it fully integrate, if that makes any sense. That totally makes sense. And that was what I was going to ask you is like, as a, as a hustler, um, yeah. <laughs> what is, <laughs> how do you, how, what is the hardest thing for you? And you sort of answered it, but like, I can't, I find it really hard to concentrate if I think that some people are expecting things yes. from me. I think that's the hardest thing, right? Like other people need stuff from me. And like, yeah, I don't know. I have really elaborate rituals that involve, you know, either just actually just being away on a vacation or like not turning on my phone from like 9 p.m. until whatever time after I finish my writing the next day because I cannot deal with other people's demands on my time. 
Um, but like, but if you're a freelance, like all that stuff, all those blocks of time and attention and everything else are so movable. So I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a problem for me. And I think I'm getting better at it. I think part of it, well, like yesterday was a classic example of like, had I just, you know, and I know you guys have talked about this too, this idea of like, oh my God, you don't have to have this like first thing in the morning crack of dawn ritual (laughs) to write. But like, had I just made myself get up at like, 7.30 instead of 8.30, I would have felt a lot more comfortable, you know? So like part of it is is just knowing that and sticking to those plans. It is, as you said, Megan, you're you're in charge of every aspect of everything. and, And that's difficult. But like, I've only really had like one office job in my adult life. And it was fine and it was great for the time, but like I knew that that wasn't where I belonged. And like I always say to people, I I was the kid in your class who when you got split up into groups to work on a project. I was like, just let me do all of it. Like I just really, I just really do work better this way. So it is hard a lot of times to hustle everything up from scratch. Um, And part of what I'm trying to think about right now with like thinking of myself as a business generally, which is a huge mind shift that I'm struggling with making and, and thinking about how I can like actually keep myself sustainable in a way that doesn't maybe only only rely on my time, which is finite. Um, but like, once you once I kind of have gotten like some anchor clients, which I've been lucky enough to have and keep and nurture that like, that does make it a little bit easier. It is really a tricky thing with how figuring out how my day should look and how I work best. I don't know if this is I would love to hear you guys talk about like your discovery process with like the best kind of methods for you because I think that I fight mine a lot and one of them is that I do kind of love to have tiny sprints of concentration um and I'm very focused on a million different things all the time so like I have a friend who's a documentarian and she will have days that are dedicated to her freelance work and and full days that are dedicated to the film project that she's working on and I just like don't really work that way Um, but then the downside of that is then you're kind of always like, wait, where am I now? And like, there's a lot of kind of like recalibration that has to happen throughout the day. Yeah. Um, well, first I want, after we talk about this, I would love for you to talk a little bit more for our listeners about the process of kind of setting up a writing, you know, being a freelance writer and Mm, how that sort of business goes. Cause, um, it is very different from doing fiction. Right. And I'm sure, um, that the writing itself, I mean, I know the writing itself is different, but I wonder if that mindset shift towards being a business affects in a positive way the writing in that it can separate it in your mind from your creative writing. Because I used to do a lot of like PR kind of um, copywriting and stuff, and it just felt so different that I didn't even think of it as writing, even though like I now use it as samples on my website. But there are so many writers who are, you know, they... They have like one book they're researching, one book they're revising for publication, one book that they're drafting. And so they just like break up their day. And um, I remember listening to an interview on a different podcast. I don't remember what it was. It might have been like Writer's Digest or something, but it was with a short story writer. And she does um, she does like more long form, intense stuff during the morning. And then in the afternoon, she does something shorter what helps for me is breaking things up with like physical activity. So I'll work like X number of 
20 minute bursts on this index or do this many chapters and then I'll go for a run and then I'll come back in and um, do some writing and then I'll go let the dog out. So I have like a physical break, but I'm really sucky at transitions. So. <laughs> That's really funny. I actually changed into my running clothes before our call so that I could just go when we got off the phone and I wouldn't have time to like talk myself out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in mind and need to shower. So, you know, we're like obsessed. I do think that that is incredibly helpful. And, and what a big... A big revelation for me with that, and I say revelation like it was like a moment of clarity, which it definitely wasn't. It was kind of just a long understanding of this was how I felt. Um, journalism for me uh, was neither creatively nor financially satisfying. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that and was able to be very purposeful about why I was doing what other projects I was doing, that separation became like much, much easier. And like most of my freelance writing um, at this point is copywriting. Um, so I worked for like a lot of like nonprofit clients or like advertising copy kind of stuff. Um, and I have, I, I enjoy it because I enjoy playing with language and it's still fun to like, you know, it's all practice. Um, but I don't, I don't, absorb it into my sense of self the way that I do with the creative writing sometimes to my detriment to our previous points um uh yeah because then I was like okay well the creative satisfaction comes from this thing and the and the financial satisfaction comes from this thing and so that's fine a lot of my guests honestly like that's been something that's been really surprising to me these people that you think are probably just writing all day, every day, you know, these like names are like, oh no, I was doing this with a day job and I was getting up at 5 a.m., you know? So, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, the freelance writing thing, I um, started out in New York um, where I went to graduate school and I lived there for about a decade um, in all. And I was very lucky because the magazine that I was working at, um, when I told them that I wanted to go full-time freelance, um, they gave me a contributor contract for a year. So they kind of like were like a little bit of a cushion. It wasn't like a full salary. I didn't have to do nothing, but like it was a nice transitional space. And then I've just kind of been like, okay, well, how can I like monetize my skills and interests? And, you know, like when I was living in Detroit, um, I had done a lot. A lot of my journalism was around food and there are so many food organizations and food access issues and nonprofits and stuff at work there that that, that was easy to see like, oh, this is a skill set that I have that could be really useful here. It's kind of funny to think about like building it because I didn't really totally consciously build it. And that's like a little bit of the shift that I'm trying to make right now is like, how can I set stuff up with more longevity and more sustainability um, so that it's not like hustling for new stuff kind of fresh all the time? Yeah. Mm hmm um, and I don't totally know what that looks like yet. I'm always like really jealous of, I'm always really jealous of visual artists, period. And like, I just got back from a residency and like, was like, you know, everybody was having open studios and I was just like, God, it just seems so, so satisfying to have something like tactile to like work with. Um, and I think about that a lot. Um, but like, I would love to be able to like produce something that is like, a, you know, what to a graphic designer like a print or like a tote bag would be. You know what I mean? I think I think it's a little bit harder for writers to to monetize not only their time. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. It's sort of the easily reproducible piece of work. Right. Like how can we scale is is something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, because all the scale versions of like 
thought pieces are basically like your book, but made dumber so you can publish it lots of other places or something, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the listicle. The listicle is Ooh. the scale version. Yeah, but that's not like you can't publish it like 40 places. I know, which is all horrible. And yeah, no right? one hangs it in their room, <laughs> right? Or right. whatever. Let's put Olivia's consultant right? mind. Well, I'm well, just wondering here. if there should be more collaborations. Because actually what is also really popular is visual, you know, whatever, like Canva or various like memes and things like that. And maybe there should be a bit more collaboration between like original visual artists and writers who can put something together and then reproduce that and share the profit. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. One of the people who I think is doing this really well is um, this woman, Marley Grace, who I had on um, at the end of last year. And like when you look at her website, it's just like she like. Oh, and she also does, you know, make some products. I think she like quilts. And so she has things, you know, physical things. But like, she also just has like a poem she wrote on like a nice piece of paper and you can buy or, you know, or, or like, um, what are they called? Do you guys know this book that proposals for the feminine economy? No. Um, Mm-mm. yeah, it's it really cool. I'm looking at it right now, but I can barely with my old eyes see her last name. Uh, Jennifer <laughs> Ambrust. They've got stuff on their website that you just like, it's a PDF and you just pay like six bucks to be able to download the PDF. So I think there are like yeah, there I think are ways to yeah. do it. Well, and I think like uh, there's a ton of these downloadables and blah, 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 like all that stuff. I think, yes. I think the way that people pay for words is, well, first of all, they mostly don't pay for them. And second, totally. uh, they they make them pretty and so you still need another skill set right like not very many people are paying just to get the words because you can get them somehow else um and so i think there's that collaboration or whatever and another thing i've thought about is like which i have not executed by the way but anyway (laughs) working on like films or something you know short documentaries or things that you know about but again i think a lot of those are also if we're just talking about only money like how can you reproduce something over and over again like a tote bag that's really difficult maybe impossible there's also i was sort of thinking about podcasting and various other things (laughs) like ways that like how do people consume art now like people read actually more maybe in some ways than they did before because there's the internet and things like that. But um, what do people pay for? Um, And it's all about like lifestyle and things like that. And I think that is difficult for writers because it's just, it's not like no one, I don't know, no one Instagrams a page of their book, right? I mean, it's impossible. And and I think that you guys actually do a really good job of this because that that exact thing is something that I struggle with on Instagram all the time where I look at, I look back at my grid and it's just like all, when it's not um, headshots of guests, it's just like all pieces of paper. It's like, I don't really know (laughs) how to like get behind the scenes in a way that is actually visually dynamic um, because it is such a... It's a kind of, you know, aesthetically, visually, it's a kind of boring thing that we do. No, I think yours is really interesting. I love your uh, episode with Kat Gardner where you talked about, and this is ties into what we've been just talking about with, you know, being envious of visual artists, but there's also like um, music, musicians and your conversation with her about trading mixtapes and demos and, you know, how the whole like process and evolution of song creation and like songwriting and the music writing is is more documented along the way and there's a lot more shared in public I mean honestly because it's hard to like 
sing a song as you're writing it and right, not right. be overheard, right? <laughs> this doesn't happen like in isolation. Um, and so this project that you did of sharing a line from your work every day um, for a while was really interesting. And I, I loved it. I thought it was really cool. And you have interesting handwriting. So that helps. Oh, thanks. I wondered about <laughs> starting that back up. But I didn't know, like, I th I felt like it started to get, like, again, like, visually very monotonous. And so I was like, I don't know if this is working. But I have had a couple of people say that they liked that. So maybe I should, maybe I should revisit that. I liked it. And I'll also note that the last three photos, I think, on our Instagram before our last episode were just my laptop in various locations in Switzerland. So it's not that exciting. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. I was like, writer Instagram is so boring. It's just pictures of laptops. It's really about the caption, yeah. weirdly, with a writer Instagram. But yeah, I think there's other parts of the writing life as well. I just wondered if you were comfortable talking about the projects that you've got. Um, I mean, I know you talk a lot about like, you're, you do status updates and stuff. But you know. I want to hear about your project. So as long as we're all in on it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I want to hear about your guys's, and I feel like I've been talking forever, so I'm going to kick it back over to you. <laughs> Megan, you're, you're further along than I am. <laughs> okay, um, okay, so mine is, it's a young adult contemporary, it has a lot of the tropes of a romance in the whole, like, happily ever after, and best friend is the love interest at the end kind of thing, um, but it's not, it started out supposed to be, like, a kind of humorous, funny romp. And apparently <laughs> I have no sense of humor and I'm really bad at that. <laughs> so it became just as dark and serious as my first book, which is about a girl who is trying to kind of start her life over after her best friend, best friend's suicide. And this was like a friendship that wasn't the healthiest friendship to begin with. And so like, how do you, how do you figure out who you are when you're suddenly alone? And how do you, um, deal with loss in a healthy way without just pretending it never existed? And then how do you deal with like truth when you're in a new place? Like how much of your past self do you reveal? Um, and how much do you not, right? So like pretty heavy stuff. I thought of it last summer when I was at the beach and I was like, oh, this would be perfect. And I wrote like the opening that was just really like silly. And then it just suddenly, like as we were talking on our last episode, it just like, turn into all of these big, serious, heavy things like um, like sexual assault and racism and like gentrification and like climate change and all of these things. And I was like, okay, obviously like writing something funny is not, not something I'm going to be doing. Um, but it is about a young woman like a teenager in that, that summer between junior and senior year of high school um, so it's that like last kid summer before you're really thinking about going off to college and leaving all of your friends. And I feel like those are two separate, totally separate feelings of summer. It's supposed to be this like last sort of carefree summer and about like, what does it mean to fall in love? And how do you find that? And um, so she goes on all these dates. And so it sounds like really light and fluffy. And it's <laughs> and then there's all this other crazy stuff going on. So I this is part of what I was talking about, about uh getting stuck it was like i was focusing too much on all of these side things and um needed to kind of pull back and like focus on the main story again which is you know what does it mean to fall in love and what does it mean to be loved and lovable um and then 
kind of dial in. So I actually feel a lot better. Status update from last episode. Things are going better with my book, Ray. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's kind of in, in a nutshell without like more detail than you already got. <laughs> I mean, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I feel like I'm a fairly funny person in life. And then no matter what, as soon as I start writing, it's just like, so serious. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, maybe it's the whole like taking yourself serious as a writer means right? every word has to like say something or mean something. And maybe it's writing in this climate like well, this that's post 2016. Yeah, as it, as it sounds to me like you're just really attuned to like reality around you, which I think is a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. And it is set in North Carolina, which is, you know, has its like, I don't know, it it has its pluses and its minuses, but it's still very much the South in a lot of ways. And there are a while there are a lot of people who would like to think of it as progressive, because as far as like, the Southeast goes, it is like a northern North, you know, North Carolina is better than South Carolina in their minds. But there's still a whole lot of just like bullshit that goes on. It's just this climate, right? Like, how do you make art that's fun, but also like does, I don't know, what are you supposed to be doing? Are you supposed to be entertaining? Are you supposed to be, I mean, you're just supposed to be telling your story. That is what they say, but. Right. Have you guys, um, have you read or do you know this book, Your Art Will Save Your Life? Yes, I have not read it but I know it it's I think I think it might be a nice little companion for you with those questions like I'm still (laughs) working through it but like it is it is very much about this thing of just like when the political stakes and the socioeconomic stakes feel so high and you're just like why am I doing anything what does it matter like what you know and and this was the, the election was actually like a really weirdly clarifying moment for me because I was I think I hadn't fully owned that what I wanted to be doing was was more creative writing like the novel and less of the journalism work that I was doing and it just made that like really click for me for whatever reason that this idea of like this is important to me and this is not but then I think like it, it can also have that effect of just like well how do I like engage with this like in a way that in, in just with this whole um atmosphere in a way that is like I don't know considered I don't really know what the what the adjective is but you know there 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 it's more I don't know I, I listened to a podcast not too long ago that um I can't remember any of the details like like you had said about the other one <laughs> um where somebody was making the observation that in the Obama years art was much more personal and now um it's much more like the scale is much bigger Mm, I heard this thing once talking, it was comparing pop songs from different decades and how like when the world is generally feels safe to those creating art, then the music gets very serious. And it talked about like the riot, riot girl movement of mm. the 90s and all of that. And then when the world feels very unsafe, then music gets like really, really, really sugary. And it was talking about like Carly Rae Jepsen and all the things that happened, you know, in the 2000s. Huh. That was an interesting, it's sort of an interesting corollary to what you're saying. Yeah. Megan and I are always having this conversation about like women writers and whatever, great American novel and various other things. And I think it's interesting if you have like uh, the art during Obama years was very personal and it's this sort of, I guess there's also this idea of the like identity politics or whatever. And now we just like need real freaking politics because everything is so screwed up, right? Or whatever. Like we have to care about healthcare. And I think all, but so... That's like me mimicking what other people say. 
Um, I think all these things have to come together. And I think what is really interesting is that there's this sort of level, like the way that inner identity, so-called identity, intersectional politics, let's say that, and um, economic politics, the way that that intersects, like, first of all, no one has really written about that in a really great expansive way right like people have written bits and pieces but I think there's nothing that addresses what we're going through right now so I'm super excited to see what people put out like and I think you know women and people of color and things like that are in the best place to discuss those issues at the moment that's just a rant um my book (laughs) is potentially not addressing that um no uh, my previous so it's my previous book was a not totally autobiographical book, but the main character was very similar to me from outward um, description. So it's like a young investigator working in Russia, um, doing like whatever fraud investigation. Then it all gets really political, and I had sort of geopolitics and whatever. And it was a kind of thriller. And actually, like I think the story and the plot was pretty fine. But the like the for me, my main character because I didn't want it to be autobiographical. I made her not myself. And then it was like just a very flat character. I think I just never really inhabited her. Um, and so now I'm writing a book about basically it's kind of I'm just gonna describe it as Lord of the Rings of the oligarchs, and I'm gonna leave that more or less. So. <laughs> but it's not it's not, it's not a fantasy. It's like whatever. So it's not really Lord of the Rings at all. But I can't describe it any other way because I don't have very many other comparables. It's actually really hard um, to describe. But it's a kind of com- competition between a couple of oligarchs. Um, and so I'm thinking about corruption and like power and things like that in this book. Um, but there's a lot of questions I have like, are you allowed to write about an oligarch if you're not an oligarch or whatever but anyway we'll discuss those maybe another time (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel sorry for the oligarchs so I'm gonna say like reserving people's stories for themselves I think when there's an inverse power balance like clearly but obviously with oligarchs like they have a lot of power so yeah you can do whatever you want I think that's well put (laughs) also I remember just this piece of advice I got from a writing workshop um, that I was in where, because a, a part of my book involves Detroit, and I was like, but you know, I don't really feel like any real authority over that story. And she was just like, nobody has authority. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean that you get to be careless or anything like yeah. that. Like you still have to be. Or claim authority. Or claim authority. Yeah. But but you can you can approach it and and there are ways to treat it respectfully and um intelligently and as knowledgeably as possible and and still have it be you know your material Mm -hmm. that is very helpful um and then yours oh yeah i'm very interested in the intersection of place and identity um and a lot of that comes from me being from appalachia and sort of not really being proud of that for a very long time and then leaving and then becoming very fascinated with it and just kind of trying to work all of that out. So when I moved to Detroit um, was the first that I learned that there there was a migration between the two places um, in the kind of mid-20th century, um, which they called the Hillbilly Highway. So like, I think it was like 7 million Appalachians moved to Detroit or Chicago or kind of northern cities like that for um, for industrial work. Um, And I was really struck when I moved to Detroit by how similar I found Detroit and West Virginia, which is where I'm from, um, 
but I, I am really interested in the way that the urban and rural settings kind of change, you know, take, take very similar circumstances or very similar um, kind of factors and change how they might play out. Um, and of course, that's a huge oversimplification. But so basically, my book is um, looking at those two places through two generations of a family that made that migration. And so I'm very interested in like allegiance to place, um, allegiance to family. Like that, that's something that that's what I was writing into t this morning actually was a lot about like, who are you besides like who you are relative to the people that you love? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I was just thinking about the whole like, you know, family, this family members, like this is our identity as a family, you know, like Smiths don't behave like that or Smiths mm. are this way and that and like breaking with that or not, not and the tension that's really fascinating. I've always been like a very, a very independent person. Um, but then the kind of flip side is that of that is feeling like sort of just like, well, like, like you can feel like you like came together out of the ether or something, you know? So like, mm. so I'm very interested in, in when people have homes that they want to leave and then like what the leaving actually does to them kind of emotionally over time and how that changes. But, but then are also, because I do find that I'm much more drawn to kind of like what, what can be called like idea books. Like it is a lot more about like the places and just sort of like what, what these mono economies do to those places and, and how we treat the working class, which is something that I'm super interested in, um, which is definitely not like original to me. Of course, this is like the huge <laughs> story of the 2016 election. Um, however, clumsily, I think it's been told. I haven't perfected my elevator pitch yet, but that's that's kind of the idea. And, and within that, there's also this um, environmental element because a thing that has always fascinated me about where I come from is how strong our relationship to like the physical land is, but how much we undermine it and how much we actually like are destroying the land at the same time. Mm. Like literally undermine like, it. Like literally, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really, it's funny because like that is actually a big center, centerpiece of my own, which I described as like a YA contemporary romance. But, <laughs> you know, it's also about coastal development and gentrification mm. and like how does that like, when we talk about preserving small businesses, whose small businesses are we talking about? I did have to laugh when you said you're you're like an idea book person because this is a discussion Olivia and I've been having for 20 years. So. <laughs> But more intensively since we started a podcast about writing. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you guys fall on that? I'm the idea book person. Megan's not. Right? Megan. Well, no, that is a <laughs> gross oversimplification. <laughs> <laughs> I am the all books have ideas in them. And it's just um, like they don't have to set out. Well, I mean, I think probably looking at like the way I just described my own book, you know, it's this is a book about I'm the sneaky idea book person. Mm. But I want, well, I I have something on this exact topic <laughs> while you were talking I wanted to ask you about, which is like, how do you get, like, technically, I've just started my oligarch book, I'm like 6,000 words in, so you have to tell me how uh, to do everything. Um, <laughs> how do you get ideas into, like, a fiction book and make them not boring? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I am figuring it out very well. Um I'm trying to just kind of like, 
I am trying to do it through people. Um, but you know, it's funny, like I was just saying to my partner this morning, I was like, I feel like most of my scenes are just two people talking. <laughs> Oh, uh, yes. Or driving in the car and talking <laughs> yeah. even worse. So like, and and I need to work on that clearly. Um, but, you know, I do think like in moderation, the, the conversation is a good, is a good one. I do feel like even famous people are like, am I doing this right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so I love about your podcast is everybody you talk to is like, no, really, I don't know what I'm doing. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, it's really heartening for me too. And I feel like it's just you know how like if some people if you tell somebody like don't do that somebody one person will be like scared and won't do it and the other person will be like fuck you i'm doing it you know i <laughs> i'm i'm the person who you're going to scare off so i think that like yeah. i can hear habits and stuff and be like oh my god you're doing it wrong and that's just like it's very easy for me you know i i had to laugh when i um Megan, when you said in your latest episode, like, um, I just got back from therapy, so everything's going to sound that way. I'm like, God, that should be like the tagline for my show. <laughs> it's all public therapy. It's all it's public great. therapy. The mini-sodes are just like, hey, guys, here's what I'm panicking about right now. Um, that idea of like, you're not doing it right is just so, yeah, it's so insidious. Yeah, but that's why your mini-sodes are so good. So like, yeah, wonderful. Oh, thank you. And your guys' pep talks. I like a lot. Which we need to get back on. So that I think yes. that's part we of our get back on summer <laughs> agenda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about podcasting a little bit? Like you guys, um, you go into seasons with like pretty clear, like this is our theme for the season, this is our goal. And and I was admiring on your website how uh like mission driven your kind of about pages. And I was like, oh, I should probably like crib that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Well, so the funny thing about the seasons is we were all we were talking about the first time, you know, the first nine months was just like, what are we even doing? Um, and to be honest, we do seasons because we get tired. Same. And yeah. then we picked the money thing and we thought that was great until like we both at the same time texted each other like, I'm really bored with this money thing. <laughs> and so we, we just stopped. So like a, some of it is a lot of it's planned and we, we had, we've kind of recently identified a theme that we sort of stumbled on that we're going to explore um, two different ones. But a lot of it is just kind of, I don't know, it's it's like writing, right? You outline and then you see where it takes you anyway. What do you think? What do you say, Olivia? Yeah. So I think, I mean, at first we were like, we just want people with data. Like we've gone all over the place. Definitely this season we thought we had this like brilliant idea and we had a whole scheme. <laughs> and then, yeah, we got bored. And I also think like everybody has their own uh, journey and everything is so specific and so at some point is like here's how you might want to like make a spreadsheet about how much money you earn and I genuinely think that might be um, useful for people who are scared and haven't like really faced the reality of their finances and things like that but at some point it's like you have to do that yourself like we can't tell you anymore um, and so then it's just really talking to people and I don't know what we're going to do for our next season but um, we have some ideas um, but I think we do want to kind of keep it real about like day jobs or not like now it's not even about day jobs, it's more just like keeping it real about like the fact that um, that kind of your how you earn your money and your creative work. And sometimes you're lucky enough that those coincide, but it's extremely rare. And most of the time you have to balance it. And so it's sort of thinking about just being honest about that, because we did hear on a lot of other podcasts, like people who just like 
ignore it or even feel shame that they have to like earn money some other way. And I think it's sort of, it is what it is. Um, and, and I think we need to be kind of honest and own it and also, you know, talk about the advantages sometimes as well. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that like, you know, I do think that there's this kind of stigma, like you, you have people kind of hiding what they're doing with the rest of their day. And like, I feel like this, again, is something that like has been so helpful for me and I didn't necessarily expect with the show is just talking to people who I would assume don't have to worry about these things. And like very few of them actually don't have to worry about those things. An interview that I just recorded that's coming up is with Tommy Orange. And I was like, I'm sure like you, your book was successful enough that I imagine everything about the way that you approach your day has changed. And he was like, yes. And like, it's one of like two, you know, and he was very, he was like, it's crazy. Like this is yes, but, but yeah. And, um, and I think there's like been like two, I think Emily St. John Mandel is the only other one who comes to mind Mm -hmm. who was like, oh, and she said, you know, only, only very recently, can I just write all day long? Um, yeah. And David makes the point in this week's episode and I, you know, and, and going back to like figuring out how we work best, I kind of agree with him. And he's like, I couldn't write all, I couldn't generate all day if that was all I was doing. Like, and, and you do kind of, I burn out pretty fast. Unless you're Danielle Steele. I've got to keep bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> what is Danielle Steele's schedule like? Wait, she hold on. Like you 20... haven't read that article? It's, oh, it's no. holy Okay, cow. it's in Glant. Is it in Glamour? Yeah, it's in some like bad. crazy magazine. She writes um, 24 she, hours a day, basically. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Okay. She takes like, one week of holiday. Literally 20 hours a day. Oh, my God. Yeah. First of all, I think she might be lying. And second, <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah. Like, like she would be dead by now. No one can do that. But she's like minimum 20 hours. If I go to sleep and sleep four hours, I feel amazing. And I hate people. First of oh all, I really hate people who do that. And second... Um, like, I just hate that whole, like that weird cult of not sleeping. I recently did a leadership talk at my job and I, they, people are like, what advice do you have for like, if you have to travel a lot and do a lot of work, I'm like, sleep whenever you can. That's all I have. <laughs> like, that's literally all I have. <laughs> I'm like, do what you need to do in your personal time and accomplish all your goals, but like seriously sleep. And I hate when people are just like, oh, I don't need sleep and I'm so successful. I just think it's so unhealthy. No, no, I totally agree. It's like, again, like people who are like, oh, well, I get up at like four. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> if I get up at four, one, I would be in bed at six every evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I'm sure that does genuinely work for some people, but it feels so inaccessible to me. Yeah. But even like, I don't know if I am getting this from on writing or if he said this somewhere else, but Stephen King like his like daily quota is like 2,500 words. Well, Megan, you posted an Instagram the other day or the other day, this was probably like months ago. This is my conception of time. Um, But you said something about like how far you had, how far you felt you were short of your weekly goal. I I believe it was a weekly goal. And and I I think the number was in the thousands and I was literally like, what? (laughs) That felt so huge to me. (laughs) I mean, they're not good words. First of all, no, but I think um, that's, it is a I first think that's draft. Fantastic, yeah. But I think different people just like draft draft differently, and I t- yeah. I've talked about this recently. Like you know, I may go like three or four days without actually writing, but mm. if if like I'm I am actually getting work done, a thousand words an hour is reasonable. However, two hours is like the most I can manage, and you know those two hours fall in the middle of four hours that are set aside for the writing, mm. right? So it's not like I'm not like a machine. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and but, you and you do you do like outlines? You had mentioned. Um, I do, but I don't know. Well, I did, but I don't know if it's working for me. Um, I don't. I I'm try. I don't know. This is this is TBD. Uh, <laughs> I am having a fraught relationship with outlining right now. Courtney, are you an out? Are you an outliner? I am absolutely not an outliner. No, I can't. I think probably I suffer for it in some sense because I think structure has always been my biggest problem. And I I had a workshop last summer and the workshop leader, like when we had our one-on-one, she was like, you know, honestly, like if that's, if that's the thing that, um, that is challenging for you, you should probably spend a little time with just some like really plotty, like kind of like airport fiction. She was like, you know, the writing's not that good, but like they're really good at structure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really good advice that I haven't taken yet. But um, <laughs> no, I think that like I seem to work. And again, this is all based on just like this one project right now, but how how this has been coming along is writing completely into the dark for just ever. And then when I think I have an understanding of what's happening, I will do a little bit of sketching out just to get clear in my head, like, okay, where is everybody going? And like, are people's arcs coming together at more or less the same time at the end of this? Because like my, my book is broken into three sections. So it's like, okay, is like the first section kind of ending, is everybody ending at the kind of sort of trajectory that I want to go into the next um, and so like that kind of stuff I'll sketch out or like outline really loosely. But in in terms of like preemptively, um, no, mostly because I just like I don't even know what it would say, you know, like uh, it really is just for me, like write it and then get rid of the crap. And then what is left is like, oh, I guess this is the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, first of all, what, what we're always saying is like you're not doing it wrong. Right. Like, exactly. However you're doing it is not wrong. Yeah. It's how you're doing it for how you need to do it. But also, like, this story I'm working on right now, part of part of it is that it all came to me all at once. Like, and this did not happen the last time. The last time I knew exactly how I wanted it to end, and I knew, like, the big thing in the middle, and I knew the beginning, but that was it. And I just kind of fumbled my way towards things. Um, but this one, it really did just, like, drop into my head as I was sitting on the beach because I had a broken arm so I couldn't actually go in the water. Um, I was like sitting there sad watching my family play and uh, and it just like fell in my, just all the whole thing with, you know, maybe like 15 or 20 midpoint scenes. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, but that's only like 30,000 words. That's not a book. So there's still a whole lot of other, and this is what I'm running into right now. It's like all those like spider tentacles. And like you say, like, Spiders don't have tentacles, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Look, people Um, are not biologists, okay? (laughs) Listen. But no, like, this is what you're, you know, like, what you're saying about your structure and how do you make sure everything, like, happens when it needs to happen and, and, and where do you go? So I was just at Virginia Center for the Creative Arts and I was talking to another writer there and she was saying that if she gets, like, a thought for her book much further down the line than where she presently is she like doesn't want it you know she's like she's like no I'm not even there yet and I don't know what's going to happen and I have to focus on this thing so like she kind of like blocks it out in a way which I thought was super interesting because I like my wall is full of post-it notes of just like random things that have occurred to me um because that is just kind of how my brain works so I just have to lean into it so my first one first book I it's it's 
told in two timelines. Um, and at first I was writing both like as I went through and then, but then I found like, as I got towards the end, first of all, the previous story, the, 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 the character's old life was less important to her in real life, like in the current story, if that makes sense, because she was moving on and she was like healing from everything that had happened. And so there are fewer of those, I guess, flashback scenes. Um, but also what happened is I would get into the story I was writing and forget to write one of those, you know? And so I would just like keep going and going and going and then think, oh man, like structurally, I haven't put one of these in yet. Um, and if I had an idea of one, I would just write it separately. So those don't thread as much together as as their own storyline as the main story, like those flashback scenes don't. They do and they don't, if that makes sense. Like they tell a story, but it's not necessarily linear. Um, so I don't know. And then this one that I'm doing is one person, but I don't even know how to describe it, so I'm not going to. <laughs> do you guys... Um ever think about this a thing that I kind of think about a lot is to, to our kind of earlier conversation about you know idea books or, or character driven books or blah 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 and all those sorts of things and thinking about like what you like as a reader sometimes I find that what I'm writing does not correlate to what I like as a reader and I find that frustrating yeah mm, yeah and I don't know if it's like this project isn't the place for that or like I haven't honed those skills enough yet to kind of bridge that distance or I don't know what it is but it is something that I think about a lot like mood is a lot of what it often is for me in stuff that I really like how how am I not capturing that like and why am I not capturing that for me I that resonates really a lot um especially around mood and also like on some level, I feel like I'm writing and especially my first book, less this book. I'm just like going with whatever I love and then I'm going to see what happens. Um, but my first book, it was like, I have to write this way. I was writing like kind of thriller. I don't even read in that genre very much. And um, but it was like, this is what I'm supposed to do with this story, you know. And I think and I read a lot of things that are probably things that I don't even want to write, like whatever, Thomas Pynchon or things that are like way over on the further side of like slightly boring and more experimental, which I sometimes also love, but I don't necessarily want to write like that. But I have like, there's so many things that I read and then I just felt so constricted in what I was trying to write, if that makes sense, that um, now I'm just going to kind of go for it and I think that was also it was like part of why like describing this as Lord of the Rings of the oligarchs is very liberating because I don't even read it I like read Lord of the Rings because I started describing it like that and so it's sort of like I can just write however I feel that the book needs to be written but I think I put a lot of pressure on myself I think that's where the mismatch for me came in between like what in my head I thought people expected or what I could maybe sell or whatever if I told this story versus maybe what I really love. And I kind of went back to what, who do I really love reading or what do I really love reading and why? And like, how does that feel? I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, and it's funny, like when I was at this residency, I um, wrote a short story, which I don't do very often at all. And it, it was a really instructive experience for me to think like, to see on a, on a kind of smaller manageable scale like that, the work telling me the way it wanted to look, which is something that people say on the show all the time. 
And I think that is also part of where I kind of feel a little bit in the fog with the novel project. You know, Olivia, when you talk about that, like, was that a deliberate process for you? Like thinking like, okay, what do I love and what do I want this to look like? Or was it just kind of a trial and error? Did you did you only recognize it and kind of be able to articulate it after the fact? No, I went there, like I wrote, uh, I have a writing website, but it has basically nothing on it. But I made a website. I was like, I'm going to treat myself like a writer. This kind of goes back to how I felt like I needed to quit my job. So I needed to like make a website that said I was a writer and whatever. Um, And so I like wrote and I've changed it now, actually. But my old version of my website was like, I really like I love books. You know, it's basically like, why do I even want to do this? Like, I really felt like I needed to go back to that because otherwise it's just like this weird Thing. And in a weird way, that helped me to um, not judge any of them. So it's like I felt like I was a failure because I wasn't a writer because that was what I was supposed to do. But then once you kind of unpack all of these things, then you don't have something that you're supposed to do. It's like you're not doing it wrong like your life, right? I mean, you're not doing it wrong is our motto about like writing. But it's also kind of how sometimes you can feel about your life, especially if you're having to balance things and you think you should be successful enough as a writer that that could be all you do. And basically, A, nobody does it almost, as we've discussed, but B, like, you're not doing it wrong, you know, like, there's all these different criteria, and you shouldn't think, like, oh, I've messed up somehow, and this is wrong. Yeah, no, no, I love that a lot, yeah. I would love, before we wrap up, to ask you guys my my last interview question that I always mm-hmm. ask, um, which is, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? I think, for me, it's when... I somehow managed to use my extra time, whatever that is, uh, to write and also still have time to rest. Um, And also like that moment when you're on fire. And the other day I had a moment like this where I didn't intend to write very many words. It's sort of just sitting down for half an hour. But I just wrote a lot of words that are describing and it just came very naturally. So any time when there's this like well of things that you didn't know you knew and they come out on the page that's for me creative satisfaction yeah that's a really that's a great that's a great answer that's such a great feeling um mine besides just saying yeah that's my answer too um is (laughs) i just love having something to show for it at the end of the day and you know sometimes creative satisfaction is like not writing at all it's doing something completely different um which i think is why i really like like domestic arts and craft kind of things because you do always have something to show for your work. Like I love to cook because like this is what I have done. What about you, Courtney? You yeah, never, wanna, you never yeah. answer I this never question. I never answer it, do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is for our side. <laughs> um, no, you know, I think right now the satisfaction that I want to feel is is I've been thinking a lot about like my relationship to my writing and like, And a lot of what we kind of started our conversation talking about in terms of pressure and, you know, feeling like it kind of has to sort of do all this work for you. Um, But I do think going back to what Olivia said and then kind of adding on to that, that that was a lot how writing the short story that I just finished felt where it was like it was very much it almost felt like collaborative, which I know sounds like mystical and cheesy, but like that was that was my the closest I've gotten to kind of understanding that idea of like working with it, not against it. Mm-hmm. And so I think just kind of like working with myself and not against myself is is what it looks like for me right now. 
That would be really satisfying. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's just go do that. That can't be hard. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was really fun. This was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thanks. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. This week's episode of Marginally was produced in collaboration with WMFA and Courtney Ballastier LLC and was edited by Arisa Apantaku. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Kaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.